This is the third sermon from Psalm 34. The reason we are in Psalm 34 is because as we go through the book of 1 Samuel, we reach the part of Samuel where David runs to Gath, the Philistine capital. He runs to Gath seeking help. He ran to his enemies because he thought he was safer among the Philistines than he was among his own people. Saul is chasing him to kill him. And Psalm 34 is written upon his deliverance from that particular event. In God's providence, the message of Psalm 34 has been so closely related to 2 Corinthians 4, which we've been preaching Sunday morning. Just a, uh, an absolute blessing to me um, to see God in his providence, wanting to encourage and, and encourage the church and bless the church with a message of comfort that the text would lead us to this. Of course, it's a, an absolute joy as a pastor to preach comforting messages. Who doesn't like to do that? Um, but to have God's word take us morning and night for really the past two weeks or three weeks um, to recognize the suffering and the glory in Christian service in our Christian lives. The first sermon, just to recap, was from Psalm 34, 1-4. We just looked at the spiritual goodness of hardship and suffering. Even foolish suffering, in David's case, was used for, for good. Praise God, I do a lot of foolish things. Second, The second sermon in Psalm 34 was focused from verses 4-14, to 14, looking at God's faithfulness to answer the prayers of His people. And He will always answer us. David is confident that he would do that. And today we're going to look at the last section of this wonderful psalm where David talks about the great favor that God's people have in God's tender care of them in the midst of hardship. So this is Psalm chapter 34, and I'm going to read the entire psalm. You can remain seated. I'll have you stand at the very end in honor of God's holy word. But hear this psalm. Of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. And their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life, who loves many days, that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil, and do good, and seek peace, and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. 
The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Please stand for these last four verses. This is God's holy inspired word. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen. Please be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer once again for wisdom. Our Father and our God, we come to you and we ask for your, your help. We ask for your favor. We pray that as we talk about this wonderful text, that you strike a straight blow with this crooked stick, that we would be encouraged and you glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. This is true. Samuel Rutherford wrote a little book. I just want to read some of his, before the sermon, some of his observations. He, he lived a life full of suffering. He was a pastor, and he also comforted many people who suffered. He said, all the saints have their own measure of winter before their eternal summer. Oh, for the long day and the high sun and the fair garden and the king's great city up above these visible heavens. What God layeth on, let us suffer. For some have one cross, some seven, some ten, some half a cross. Yet all the saints have a whole and full joy, and seven crosses have seven joys. He also said, glorify the Lord in your sufferings and take his banner of love and spread it over you. Others will follow you if they see you strong in the Lord. Their courage shall take life from your Christian carriage. The last one. The weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lieth upon your strong Savior. The heaviest end, if you will, of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lies upon your strong Savior. <clears throat> well, that is kind of the flavor of the message. The Lord certainly is near the brokenhearted. I'm going to take the verses out of order, but I'm going to make four points. We do have many afflictions in life. This is verse 19. Secondly, God knows and hears. He knows all that we suffer. He knows all about our lives. He knows everything about us. And he hears us. Thirdly, we'll see that he actually will punish the wicked. We don't have to worry that there's some injustice that God is not going to eventually fix. He's a just God, and we don't have to take vengeance upon anyone. But we should pray for them. And then fourthly, God delivers his people. He always delivers his people because he loves them. So he says in verse 19, the first point, our afflictions are many. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. This is just true. And I feel like it's so important to say it because the culture, especially the Christian culture today, often says the very opposite. If you come to Christ, you have nothing but joy and happiness. There's nothing to worry about. You're going you're gonna to prosper in every way. You're going to be healthy and Life's going to be good. You'll get all the promotions. If only you just trust God and um, do your best to live a good life. 
But the Bible says the opposite. If you come to Christ, you're coming to die. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And David isn't the only one who says it. Christ said it. In John 16, 33, In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, in other words, all Christians, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter, 1 Peter 4, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that's come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, you should expect this, Christian, this fiery trial isn't, isn't supposed to be a surprise. This is coming to all of God's people. Jesus said in John 15, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we also know we have an adversary, the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Wow, that sounds really discouraging. What a, what a horrible message that David and Christ and Peter and Paul are preaching to the church. But of course, that's not the end of the story. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. We might suffer a little on this road, this wilderness journey, but the reality is that God is bursting down the kingdom of Satan. One person at a time, by the Christian witness of people like you and like me. And he cares for us. If we didn't have the Almighty God on our side, it would be horrible, a horrible thought that we were going to, to be afflicted. But Jesus, comforting his apostles and comforting us, said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So your affliction is not randomized. Your affliction is with a purpose. God's most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all their creatures, all his creatures and all their actions, is for us. We expect affliction in this world, but God is not unjust in bringing his people to hardship. It's, it's as a good shepherd that he leads us into dark valleys. And often into still waters and to lush grass. So afflictions will come. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. David knew this full well. And so did every other saint after him. And you know it as well, don't you? But the good news is that there's a purpose and that God knows and God hears and God sees. Look at verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. We have a God who sees all things and who hears all things and who knows all things. That's our God. Nothing surprised him. 
Nothing is unknown to him. He knows all of your wounds. He knows all of your hurts. He knows all of the, the ways that you've failed. He knows all of your suffering. He knows where you're limping. He knows where you're prideful. He knows all of it. And his eyes are on you. And he's listening. Because he's here for you. He's your shepherd. The parallel psalm to Psalm 34, written after the same event as Psalm 56. And in Psalm 56, David says much the same things. In Psalm 56, he says, You have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Isn't that just tremendous to consider? That Almighty Creator God actually cares about the things that cause you to toss. You know, about one or once or twice a week, I, I don't sleep too well, I'm rolling over, and it's because my mind is racing, and I'm, I know that that's my prayer time. If God wakes me up at night, I just say, thank you, Lord, and I pray. But there's something tossing around in my mind. What is that? Well, God wants me to pray. But he knows every tossing. He knows every concern. He's attentive to his people. He's a good shepherd. Or I guess for Tennessee, we could say he's a good cattleman. Like, I'm a, I'm a bad cattleman. Maybe the David came out to my farm and I was just walking around kind of embarrassed because I'm like, ah, oh, there's some cows. I think they're doing okay. You know, maybe they're not. I don't really know. I'm not that good of a cattleman. Although I'm a Texan, you'd think it's in my blood, but it doesn't seem to be. These cows are surviving, though, by God's grace. But God is a good cattleman. He's a good shepherd. He notices every detail. He notices everything about the sheep that would cause that sheep to be wounded or to have some long-term uh, injury or to have some disease or don't eat this particular place. You need to eat over here. He is watching everything for his sheep and he's listening our God sees and hears when the righteous cry for help. And the most common command in Scripture, according to some, is the command, do not fear. This is why we do not fear, because God sees and God hears. So when we face problems in life, we can do like David and cry out to God. How do you do that? You pray. You pray short prayers, you pray long prayers, you certainly have a time set apart in your day for prayer, but you pray. And you take advantage of the easy times to pray. When you're driving, turn off the radio, pray. When God wakes you up in the middle of the night, take the time to pray. You'll be surprised how quickly you fall back to sleep. Pray, pray all the time. Seek God, especially when you're suffering. Seek Him with all your heart. Because you have a God who hears and sees and knows. So do not fear, brother, sister, don't fear. And we also see that his knowledge, he sees, he hears, and he knows, but his knowledge is complete. It's absolute. He knows the end and the beginning. He knows everything in the middle and every detail about everything. David says in verse 20, he keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. His control, his knowledge, his power is so absolute that nothing is going to be broken 
accept what he says should be broken. And he keeps all his bones. He knows every one of them. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything. Not a sparrow falls to the sky, from the sky, apart from his will. He cares for the tiniest creature in the deepest part of the sea, the, the smallest insect in the most remote jungle, the even the smallest atom in the farthest part of the universe is in his care. The smallest ant in your yard, the wildest donkey in the farthest desert, all under the care of our Almighty God. He causes all the grass to grow or not to grow. He causes the rivers to flow, the fruit trees to flourish, the crops to be lush, this is our God, and this is his level of care. So his care for you is like that. It's so minute and careful and detailed. He doesn't miss anything. He sees it all, and he knows the details of your life and what you face. And the wonderful thing is that all your days were written in his book before one of your days came to be. He knows the beginning to the end of your life and everything in the middle. He knows it all. And this is amazing. Read Psalm 139. This is David in Psalm 139, just expounding on God and his sovereignty in his life. And the comfort that he has from it. Especially when you consider what he says in Psalm 56, again, the parallel psalm to Psalm 34, that this I know that God is for me. Christians need to hear those words. God is not against you. He is for you. The whole Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, are for you. Often I don't think we believe it. We think that God is somehow either not paying attention, or he's actually against me, or he's so disappointed in me that he just can't wait to punish me again. Those are lies. God is for you. As we heard David declare last week earlier in this psalm, the angel of the Lord is who camps around you to protect you. He's for you. So our afflictions are many, but God knows and sees and hears, and God is for you. He's for his sheep. He wants them to be healthy, of course. He wants them to be whole. He's going to pull them out of a ditch. He's going to, he's going to keep them away from something that might harm them. He might use the rod at times, but he's for you. And when the wolf comes, prowling around, when the coyote comes around the calves, the wolves come around the lambs, our good shepherd, our conquering king, will conquer all of our enemies. This third point. He punishes the wicked. We don't have to worry about the wicked. God takes care of the wicked. And he protects us from the wicked. Verse 16, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So we see in verse 16 kind of the, the, the converse of the blessing, the ironic blessing that you receive every Sunday morning. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, and turn his countenance toward you. It's the same Hebrew word. And turn his face toward you and give you peace. This is the best blessing that anyone could want. It's what the Hebrews wanted. They wanted God to turn his face toward them and bless him. 
and shalom and, and a life filled with God and His peace. His steadfast love. Well, the opposite of that is that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because God is God, there will be justice on the earth. It's not our business. We just need to trust God. It may seem like the wicked prosper. It may seem like you are always afflicted. But there will be a reckoning for those who do evil. And in verse 21, the word says, Affliction will slay the wicked. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. This word translated affliction also means malice or hatred. Calvin translates it malice. He says malice will slay the wicked. It's almost the idea that their own malice, their own hatred is going to come back upon them. And we know that happens quite often in God's providence. To bring about their destruction. So what do we think about wicked people who seem so blessed, so wealthy, so healthy, so powerful? What do we do with that? Well, David tells us, even if the wicked seem to prosper on earth, it only shows the great mercy of God and the common grace toward mankind. This life is a mere breath, and the wicked and the rebellious are going to suffer divine wrath and hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So if he gives them a measure of joy or happiness on the earth, are we to begrudge that? No. I pray for their souls. And it just shows the mercy of God to give them some measure of happiness, even in their wicked state. Some measure of blessing. But God will never be subject to the charge of injustice. His mercy is great, even toward the impenitent. You remember the most wicked time on the entire earth was before the flood. God waited a thousand, two thousand years, even longer before bringing a flood upon the earth to destroy the wicked. He said all their thoughts were only ever wicked all the time. And God in his mercy delayed, he delayed the, the righteous justice upon the wicked world. But don't come away with the idea that God's justice is somehow a negative. It's a negative attribute of God. It's, it's this thing we don't like to talk about because it's, it reflects something poorly on our, on our Savior or on our God. Are you aware that God receives just as much glory from His grace and His love as He does for His wrath and His retribution and justice? His glory is found everywhere where God is found. This is true. All of the attributes of God are glorious, and all of God's actions are glorious. And not one is more glorious than another. When you see the attributes of God in action, we praise our holy God. So with that as a context, we read that while God turns His face toward His people and shines on them with love and favor and mercy and grace, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So it's overwhelming to think that all of the attributes of God 
are for his people. All of them are for you. If, if you're in his flock, all that God is is for you in a way. I'm not saying it's all about you, but I'm saying when God measures up all that he is and does, he's for you in all of his attributes. And the terrifying reality to me and should be to you is that in the same way all of the attributes of God are against those who do evil, who hate God, and who hate God's people. And this is too horrifying to contemplate. The reality of God's retribution against those who hate him. This produces in me a great compassion for people who are lost. I look at people in government or in Hollywood or just in my family or people who are in the community and you just know that they have nothing for God. And I'm not angry about it. My heart breaks for them. They face an eternity of wrath for their wickedness and rebellion against God. And for this reason, we have compassion on others. We don't take offense. We don't hold grudges. We don't point out others' faults. Well, why would we waste time doing that? We need to be praying for the lost, showing them the love of Christ. Pray for their salvation and their spiritual blessing. Because the alternative to their salvation is an eternal punishment hell. And who would ever want that for anyone? It's horrible to contemplate. But in God's justice, in God's righteousness, in His holiness, that is what awaits the impenitent. But in God's grace and His mercy, He's equipped us to share the good news, the love of God. God is glorified both in his grace and in his wrath. And yet we pray that he would be compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love for us and for those who are perishing. They need Jesus. So when someone persecutes you, when someone slanders you or lies about you, when someone offends you, take it, ball it all up, and pray for it. Pray for that person and just toss it. Because what you want is for the Holy Spirit to grow love in their lives. What you want is for the Holy Spirit to regenerate their hearts if they're not Christians. But if they are Christian people, you want the Holy Spirit to, to sanctify them. So in that way, we truly become a person who thinks God's thoughts after God. We think of the, the spiritual growth that could potentially come from this moment. So look at every opportunity for you to be offended as an opportunity for you to flip this on the enemy. What Satan means for evil, God can use for good. So you flip it and you, where you should be angry, you replace it with love. Where you should be offended, you replace it with mercy and grace. Well, they don't deserve my grace. Well, of course they don't. That's what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. It's giving love to people who don't deserve it. That's what Jesus did for you. And you can do it for others. So the face of the Lord may be against those who do evil, but your face needs to be praying for those who do evil. So David knows that the afflictions of the righteous are many. He knows that God sees all of his pain and sorrow, and God will get vengeance 
He doesn't need to worry about the wicked. He doesn't need to worry about his own vengeance. God will take vengeance. But now we see that God is going to deliver all of his people all the time. So God does bring affliction to even his own people, even his own sheep. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But what? But the Lord delivers him from them all. Praise God, that's, that's an anchor for us. Of course, now we know that it's anchored in the, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. He will deliver us because he delivered his son from death. There may not be any such thing as a Christian without hardship, but there's also not any such thing as a Christian who will not be delivered. He will always deliver us. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord delivers and hears. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. This is David's confidence. God delivers his people. Not will deliver or has delivered, those are included, but delivers now and will keep on delivering. That's what that verb means. It's a present, but it's also extending into the future. Yahweh delivers his people. When you're in the midst of, of a struggle, a hardship, a trial, you're tempted to think that you're just going to have to stay there. But what you need to do is wait patiently for the Lord. That's Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. What did he do? He turned and heard my cry, and he lifted me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet on a rock. That's what happens to all of us. We wait. We humbly submit to whatever the discipline is that God brings to us. And we wait on the Lord. And we expect Him to come and deliver us because He will. And this is strong encouragement for us to pray. Notice that David doesn't only say that God delivers the righteous, but the righteous who cry out to Him. Will He deliver if you don't cry out to Him? Maybe. Probably. You're his sheep. But we need to be crying out to God. We're people who talk to our God. And have you thought about that before? We're a people who talk to our God. We have a relationship with our God. What a privilege. What an absolute privilege to talk to our God. You know, I've told you in Thailand, I was there watching this big statue and people came and offered incense and brought fruit and all kinds of weird stuff. It felt evil. They weren't talking to their God. They weren't talking at all. They had no relationship with that big old statue. We have a relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the triune God. And we talk to our God. We cry out to Him, to a person. And verse 22 says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Lord redeems. That's a rescue. It's a, a ransom. It's, it's to rescue from punishment, to redeem. A rescue from slavery. God delivers and redeems us. The salvation of David from the Philistines is what David is talking about most directly. He redeemed the life of David from the Philistines, but he 
He adds the word servants. He pluralizes it. He redeems the life of his servants. He's talking about all of us, all of God's people. And none of us who take refuge in Yahweh will ever be ashamed or condemned. God is fighting our fights, and he will deliver all of us. So let's conclude with the why. Why does he deliver us? Why, why has he brought you into his sheepfold? Why are you his son or his daughter? Well, that's a good question. You don't deserve it any more than I do. I would be that crazy cousin or that crazy uncle who just ruins everything if God brought me to his family table. I would be the weird one. I would be the one cursing or, or making lewd remarks or showing my sin in front of the whole family. That's who we would all be apart from Christ. But he brings us into his family because he loves us. Why does he love us? He just does. He loves us. He's near to those who cry out to him. Verse 18, David says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. You see, the angel of the Lord is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. David is saying, God is so near to me and he's near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. Doesn't it remind you of Christ saying, Come to me, all you who are weak and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't it sound like this is the same person David is talking about? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. What is it to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit? The words are used elsewhere by David to describe his great anguish and his brokenness. He's been crushed and smitten and humbled and pursued and afflicted. And not only that, he feels like God is, and sometimes in the Psalms you, you get the sense that God is taking his sweet time to deliver him. God is slow in coming to him. That's how he feels. Sometimes you might feel like that too, like you've cried out to God for so long. And of course, when, when you ask for something, you want it in a year. No, you want it this hour, this minute. You want it now. And God sometimes does things in his own timing. He doesn't answer you right away. He'll even hide his face from you for a short time so that you would reach a much lower place than you ever imagined. And when you reach the bottom, when you reach the bottom emotionally, and when you reach the bottom, what do you have left? It's just you and God and His Word. And you call out to God with a new emphasis, with a new passion. God, where are you? Are you hearing my prayer? And it's there that you find that you're your broken heart is mended in a way that you didn't know was possible. And it's even sweeter on the backside. It's like a woman who's given birth and she's in great pain. And after the birth, she, she doesn't remember the pain. She just looks at the beauty of the child in her arms. You see, you can't see that coming. All you feel in the midst of the moment is the pain and the sorrow. 
and your crushed spirit is ready to fail, and you call out to God, as David did, in the lowest of lows and the worst of the worst that you've ever been, and God answers and delivers you from suffering and hardship, even if it's not with the speedy comfort that you're used to receiving from God, and yet this, and even this, is not without a purpose. When things are the darkest, the light often bursts forth the brightest. I read another account. I love these kinds of stories just because I've, I've experienced one in Natural Bridge Caverns. But it was a woman who went down into a coal mine, thousands and thousands of feet down, and then they turned off the lights just so everyone could feel the dark. So there's 20 or 30 people. And someone on the other side of the room just lit a match. And in the midst of the absolute blackness of dark, that match lit up the entire cavern. One match. So powerful is the light when it's dark and dark and dark. So when things are the darkest in our lives, the light bursts forth into our lives, the brightest. So this is an encouragement. It's been an encouragement to saints throughout the ages. We're pressed but not crushed. We're persecuted but not abandoned. We're struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ. We see that Paul probably had this psalm memorized because it seems to flow out of him in 2 Corinthians. As he almost seems to glory in his suffering and in his experiences and in his difficulties, as it reflects the suffering of Christ and provides grace, by the Holy Spirit to his church. This psalm encourages us to trust the Lord and in trusting the Lord to praise him. So when you remember his power and his love and his care for you and his tenderness as your shepherd and his willingness to be near you when you cry out to him, you, like David, should bless the Lord at all times after that and train your heart to continually praise him Father and our God, we thank you so much for your word and the great comfort and courage that we have in it. Thank you for encouraging our souls when we face hardship and trial and suffering to take courage like David, to remember the blessings of God, to be encouraged that you are with us, you are near us. We don't have to worry about our enemies. We don't have to seek vengeance. We don't have to pursue anyone for any level of justice. Lord, it's all in your hands. And like a good shepherd, you lead us. You watch over us. You care for us. You comfort us in the midst of our wounds. And even in our darkest hour, we can praise you. We give you all the glory and honor and power. 